You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. I want to just take stop for a moment and say thank you for stopping and taking some time today to truly celebrate the greatest moment in all of history, that the stone is rolled away, that the tomb is empty, that Jesus Christ is alive, risen from the dead, and that news can bring you and I great hope. Will you just applaud for that? That is good news. This morning, around the world, there are literally billions of people who are saying that the cross and the grave and the resurrection of Jesus Christ brings hope and has actually transformed their lives. And I want that thought to sit with you for just a minute. That it's not just a few people who say that, but that truly this weekend, billions of people around the globe will be celebrating the risen Lord. And that gives hope. In fact, I want to talk a little bit today about being in the search of hope. Our culture is desperately looking for hope. If we go back to the ancient world, the Greeks were about 50-50 on hope. They're about 50% that, you know what, the gods might shine with favor on us or they might not. This voyage out to sea may be successful or it might not. They're about 50-50 on whether they could actually hope. The Hebrews, ancient Hebrews, they were about 50-50 on hope because they believed that if they're obedient, God will go with them when they go into battle. But sometimes they knew their disobedience. So they weren't totally sure sometimes if they hadn't sought the Lord whether his presence and his power was going to be with them when they went into battle. So they were about 50-50 on hope. And Jesus comes along. And Jesus sacrifices himself for our sin, that all God's wrath against your sin, the stuff you've done wrong and I've done wrong, is poured out on Jesus. And Jesus is the perfect sacrificial lamb. He has never sinned. He's the God-man, the only one that ever existed. And all of God's wrath is poured out on Jesus on the cross and satisfied, paid in full. And through faith in what Jesus did on the cross, we can be saved And so what happens is you walk into the New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus. He's on earth for 40 days. He then ascends up into heaven. And the church, his disciples and others are just absolutely unleashed with new hope. Christians come along and Christians look at hope and they always point back at Jesus and the faithfulness of God throughout history. And to Christians, hope is like 100%. It doesn't mean your life is going to be good. It doesn't mean that you're not going to have suffering. It doesn't mean that Life's not going to be relentless because, as I like to say, life is always relentless. But God is good. And Christians will point to the goodness of God even in the worst circumstances. I don't know if you know this, but this last week a church burned down in Paris. And that's a building, and for some it would be their house of worship. But this Easter weekend, hundreds of Christians were bombed in Sri Lanka as they were there to worship the risen Christ. And for those people, they are now in the presence of Lord to their families who will grieve them desperately. They will say, in the midst of this worst kind of terroristic act, we still place our hope that there is life after death, that there is hope after the grave, and it's all because of Jesus. So Christians point to Jesus, and they almost have this sense of 100% hope, even when life is difficult. But our culture currently is training all of us, we want hope desperately, but is training us not to trust hope. People are hurting for hope, right? Suicide rates go through the roof without hope. When people finally lose all hope, those rates go way up. 
We live in an age of anxiety and depression. And then you get Lana Del Rey who comes along and says this about hope. She says, hope is a dangerous thing for a woman like me to have. In other words, it's, it's dangerous. It can't be trusted. It, it, it might fail you. Hope is being stereotyped as that, dangerous. Why? Because the fear that it will disappoint, that hope can't be real, that hope is something that people look at as like almost a fantasy. And the youngest generation right now, what we call iGen, the iPhone generation, this youngest generation, some call it Generation Y, but the youngest generation, iGen, is being taught that hope is a fantasy. So the ancient Greeks would say 50-50, and the ancient Hebrews would say 50-50. Christians would say life is hard, but we have hope in God. And the current generation is being stereotyped, hope is being stereotyped to them as 0%. And no wonder we are scratching our heads and looking in our classrooms and at the actions of our children and saying, they just are thinking differently than we are. Like, I don't know how to communicate hope in a clear way to them because our culture is desperate for hope in so many ways. Chainsmokers has a song said, that wasn't love, that wasn't love, that was just hope. Do you hear the despair? Do you see the, what our culture just is walking and talking because why? In our culture, people are tormented by hope. They want it so bad, but they're tormented by it. I'm going to talk with you a little bit today just about some of the markers of this youngest generation, iGen. They're the 9-11 generation. They know about it or heard about it. They definitely walked through the 2007 crash in the economy, and, and they're afraid. They would say, we lost something in the economy. Mom or dad cannot get a job, and we've lost something, and they're fearful and scared of possibly losing a parent to divorce or death. They've got more fear than any other generation. They're terrified of finances or debt, but interestingly, they spend more than millennials do. On the flip side, the young generation, iGen, is gonna work harder than millennials do and they're gonna actually push it. I think we'll see just a influx because this young generation out of fear is gonna say, it's all up to me, I've gotta work harder, I've gotta bring more to the table, I need wisdom from people who are not like me and they are desperately lonely and that's not just the young generation, is it? Our culture is desperately lonely. You're sitting in a crowd and many of you here today, you're desperately lonely. You might have a lot of friends online, but your heart knows that you're lonely. You're looking for hope. You're looking for joy. And our, our science is showing that our bodies are not conditioned to respond to a lack of connection. That when you take out your phone and you text someone and you text them and then you see the little dot, dot, dots, they got the message, they're replying back to you and the little three dots come, right? Dot, dot, dot. And then they kind of go away, and you're like, oh, man, did they change their mind? And then they dot, dot, dot again, and then, then it goes away, and nothing shows up. Science is showing us that we actually have a physiological response, a biological response, that we are not conditioned to know what to do with a non-response from a text. Why? Because we're created for community. We're created for relationship. We're created for connection. But so often we are looking for connection with people online. And people are turning to a lot of things online. People are turning to social media. They're turning to video games. They're turning to things like pornography, trying to establish some connection. And studies are currently showing that people who spend over two hours a day reaching online for some sort of connection will in a very short amount of time have at least some level of a depressive episode. Who's going to have that? People who spend two hours a day or more 
looking for connection online. Our youngest generation, iGen, is fairly intolerant of intolerance, and the reason is they think if you, as they listen to you, if you won't accept other people, then you're probably not going to accept me, and because they're driven by fear, they think, I fear that you will reject me true. On the flip side, iGen will be far less judgmental than you are. We are desperate for hope, and what happens is on the inside, we want hope so bad, but we're being conditioned that hope can't be trusted, that hope isn't available, that it's all up to you. And on the inside, we actually are being tormented by hope. We don't know what to do with it. And we believe that Jesus is the answer. If you're taking notes today, write this down. Culture says, if something is wrong with me, you should be proud of me. So what happens? You boast about what's wrong with you. People are just desperate. They're saying, if I could just get a label, if I could just figure myself out, if I could know why I am the way I am, then I can identify with that. And it doesn't mean I necessarily need to change. It means that I can now tell people why I am like I am. And if you truly love me and you're going to accept me, then just accept me with what's wrong with me, right? It's the mutant generation, right? They grew up with you, you need to accept the mutants and what is wrong with them. And that's what they're saying. They're saying, listen, if I'm going to glory about something, if I'm going to boast about something, I'm going to boast about what's wrong with me. Well, the disciples had something wrong with them. Jesus was dead. He was in the grave. He was in the tomb. And so what do they do? They run away. They go into hiding. But our culture is a little different. When something is wrong with us, we go online. When something's wrong with us, we say, I'll tell you what's wrong with me. It's a loss of shame culture, right? So I'm going to tell you what's wrong with me, and then I just expect you to applaud me as I live it out. I don't know what to do with it. I don't anticipate that I may or may not work through what I'm experiencing, but you should at least applaud me. And we're watching whole generations that are so hungry for hope being tormented that there could actually be a hope that would make a difference in your life right now and a difference in your life when your life is over and a hope that transcends death. We are tormented by hope. So what do we do? We boast, we glory in what is wrong with us. But Paul says this, who became a believer after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Romans 5, 1, he says, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, let me just explain that. Faith is not something you have. Faith is something you give. You gave faith to the fact that your chair held you when you sat down today. You gave it faith. It's not something you have, it's something you give. In the same way, what he's saying is, when we gave faith to what Jesus did on the cross, that he paid for our sins, he was buried, he rose to new life, it says we are justified. And what that means is just as if I had never done it. Well, wouldn't that be nice? Just as if you've never done your sin. Just as if you'd never done anything wrong just as if you never had wrong motives, just as, as if you never stole or lied or cheated or anything else. He's saying this, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Isn't that beautiful? Through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast, what do we boast in? We boast in the hope and the glory of God. Not only so, but we glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Was there's a culture tormented by hope? Yep. He's saying this hope 
through what Jesus did on the cross and through which we put faith doesn't put us to shame. He goes on and says, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In that passage, the word boast and the word glory are exactly the same Greek word. In English, they wrote them differently, but they basically, they would mean the same thing. If you read this in Greek, it's the same word. So in other words, what do we boast about? We boast of what Jesus did on the cross, that it's all about you, that we put faith in what you did on the cross. It cancels out my sin. I boast in that, but guess what else we boast in or we glory in? What should we be proud about? We should be proud in our sufferings because life isn't easy. Life is relentless, but God is good. And he's saying, why? Because suffering does something in us. Suffering changes us, just like Christ on the cross, that he suffered, why? Not because of his sin, but because of ours. And he bore that suffering, but what happens now to those who believe in Christ, we will experience suffering. And he says, here's the process. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance builds strength of character, and character brings about hope. So we're going to boast not only in what Jesus did on the cross and our future hope, but we're going to boast in the sufferings that we experience while still in this life. Without hope, you need a resurrection. And some of you have put hope in a person or a place or a price tag or in some possession, and it will let you down. And when you put your hope in a dead-end thing, you are still desperately tormented by hope. And you're going to look for it but you're going to find in your life you're not experiencing what everybody wants, which is joy and hope. You're afraid. You're afraid to hope that God can make a difference in your life right now. You're afraid to hope that Jesus' death on the cross would actually take care of your sins. And you're afraid to hope that there could be a future beyond death and a hope beyond this life. But let me tell you, when you're tormented by hope, then you need a resurrection. See, Jesus didn't come to make good people better. He came to take dead people and give them new life. And when we're without hope, we're dead. We're walking and we're dead and we're without hope. But Jesus came to bring us a resurrection. Number two on your outline, you can fear hope because you're conditioned to believe hope will disappoint. What's the result? You're stuck. So when we believe the lies of our culture, that hope is not to be available or to be trusted, then we get stuck. What's missing in our culture? Joy and hope. The mistrust of hope never has your best in mind. Do you thrive without hope? Does your life like actually just thrive when you have no hope? Of course not. Do you get better without hope? Do you look toward the promise of the future without hope? No, of course not. So the question is, who then might be telling you and me that hope can't be trusted? And do they, in fact, have your best in mind? If the message is you can't trust hope, then they probably don't have your best in mind. So where's that message come from? Is it your own thoughts? You might think it's philosophy or realism or the devil or some dark forces or the power of the universe or just the message of culture. But you need to ask yourself, whoever is preaching to me that the message of hope can't be trusted doesn't have your best in mind. And you want to say, I need a resurrection. I need to stop being tormented by hope. Well, what's the alternative? The alternative is, is hope authentic and can it be trusted? We've got to find out. In Romans chapter 15, verse 7, 
Paul writes this, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Later on in verse 12, he says, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse, that's an Old Testament prophecy about Jesus, will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations and him the Gentiles will hope. Now remember, previously it was only, it was only Jewish people that put their hope in Yahweh God, right? Now he's saying Gentiles will hope, verse 13. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with what? Overflow with hope and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he's saying this, listen, Paul is writing to Jewish people who've been dispersed all over the Roman world. And he's saying, listen, as you watch, as you put your faith and trust in Jesus, as you watch and see Gentiles, non-Jewish people, put their faith and trust in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, that you should accept them, even though they're not like you, because the grace of God is magnificent. It is available to all people. And let me tell you, when you and I begin to watch and see the grace of God be accepted by the least likely person, that person says, these people, the grace and the hope in Jesus might be available to me because I just see how they accept and how they love one another. Number three in your outline, where the Holy Spirit is, everything grows. What did he say in verse 13 of Romans 15? He said, may the hope, the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit? When Jesus, you accept Jesus, you put faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross, he gives you and me his Holy Spirit on the inside. That Holy Spirit is a deposit seal of the guarantee of God of salvation after our moment of death. And that Holy Spirit begins to walk with us. It's no longer God comes and goes, but it's now God with us. See, in the Old Testament, it was God might be with us or he might not. And when Jesus was around, Jesus was dead. He was buried, he resurrected. He was alive. He was around for 40 days, but then he ascended into heaven. It was God coming and going. But Jesus said, I will give God's Holy Spirit to you. So now it's no longer a God who's with you in a way, but now it's a God who's come to indwell you, to stay. It's your deposit making your life better now and in the future. So where the Holy Spirit is, everything grows. And so we look now at the message of culture at the time of Jesus's crucifixion. Look with me at Matthew 27, verse 62 through 66. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, now they're of course talking about Jesus who is crucified. That deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. And this last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. See, the last thing that the people who killed Jesus wanted was for any hope to arise. They devise a plan to squash any hope of hope, right? If we can kill hope, then the forward progress of these people will end. That's what happens in sports, right? If we can just keep the ball, time will run out. Their hope of coming back will not happen. If we can just keep the ball, we will expire the clock. And that's what they're thinking. We've got three days. All we got to do is keep the ball. All we got to do is keep the body. And so if we have the body, we will win at removing hope. And so this military special ops team would ensure a fail-safe plan. 
So they take these Roman elite soldiers and they put them out there at the tomb where the stone has been rolled over the opening of the tomb. They put a wax seal with the authority of the governor on it. And then they camp right there, the soldiers do. Now these are the elite Roman soldiers. These are the military trained professionals who have conquered the known world and all the armies and all the mercenaries and all the great military people who would oppose Rome, they've conquered them all. These are the soldiers that are put at the tomb. Matthew 28, beginning with verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Okay, I just want to let you know that the picture or the artwork that you have of an angel might be a little too pretty. Because these mercenaries have now seen the angel come down, and they have laid down on the ground in the fetal position and are shaking like dead men. That's the response to an angel of the Lord. A little bit different than what you see that looks all lofty and floaty and clouds in the sky. Verse 5, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he's risen from the dead. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy. And they ran to tell the disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them. Now I love this picture. I love that phrase, suddenly Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I think sometimes you and I are going through life and we're running after hope for other things and you keep bumping into the name of Jesus, that it was through somebody with a conversation, you're like, there he is again. Someone else is talking about Jesus Christ. You're like, there it is again. And then you're reaching for things and you just all of a sudden realize, well, maybe this thing about Jesus that billions of people are worshiping could actually be true. And maybe, just maybe, this thing about Jesus could be true of me and I too could worship him. I just keep bumping into Jesus and that's what Jesus does. He pursues the furthest out person and says, suddenly I will pursue you and I will make myself known to you because I love you. So here they are running off to tell the disciples and suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, they clasped his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. In other words, he's saying, get unstuck. What are they doing? They're in hiding. The brothers, the disciples, they're in hiding. He's saying, go, get unstuck. Go to Galilee. And there they will see me. And when the, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. And when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, quote, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while you were asleep. And if this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble, right? He's basically saying, if the fact that you failed on the job gets back to the governor, we'll keep you out of trouble because typically this would be a penalty worthy of death. So I'll keep you, a, you know, in other words, I'll save you from death. In fact, we're going to give you a large sum of money and you just tell the story. Guess what those guys are going to do? You tell the story. You tell the story in that moment. 
And that's what they did. So it goes on and it says this. So the soldiers took the money, did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted, speaking of Thomas. And then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So what's Jesus saying? I'm ascending to heaven but I will give you my Holy Spirit. It is not God is coming and going anymore. It's now God is with you. You have complete access to God. You don't have to go through a priest or a pastor or a person. All you have to do is have direct access to speak to God. Your creator God hears you. He loves you and you have access to him. It's a beautiful picture. Pastor Andy Stanley says that nobody expected nobody. Nobody expected nobody, right? The chief priests and the Pharisees, they thought we have it covered. We've got the guards. We will, at the end of three days, we will have a body. Nobody expected nobody. The ladies, they had prepared spices and perfumes to prepare the body of Jesus for the appropriate Jewish burial because the day that he was crucified, he was taken down at the end of the day. He, some guys took him down. They put him in the tomb. And I think the ladies were like, oh, the guys did it all wrong. Like, we got to get the spices together and do it right and embalm him in the right way. And so they prepared all that stuff, and they couldn't do it because Sabbath was coming. You weren't allowed to work on the Sabbath. So it didn't get done. So what are they doing? Sabbath is done. First time on Sunday morning, we're going to go see if we can get to the tomb. And nobody expected nobody. The ladies expected a body. The angels said, come look in the tomb. They, didn't expe they, they expected there would be a body. There's no body. They ran and told the disciples. The disciples expected there's a body. We saw Jesus be crucified. We saw him with disfigured to the point of not even looking like a man because he had been so tortured. And he was dead. We've seen it with our eyes. Nobody expected nobody. The Roman soldiers didn't expect after three days to have a body. They were there to ensure that a body was available. Nobody expected nobody. But... God does the impossible. And sometimes you think, I don't know, God, if you can help me. God, I don't know if you can resurrect what's wrong with me. God, I don't know if you can take dead things and bring them back to life. But I'm here today to tell you that God is in the business of taking very dead things and bringing them back to life. So instead of just boasting about what's wrong with us, say, God, we need you. We need you to wander in here. We need to suddenly, Jesus, meet you that you might give us the advantage that we need in an age of despair and depression and anxiety. Wouldn't that be nice to have an advantage? Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, how many of you in here are raising kids right now or grandkids? Wouldn't it be nice to have an advantage in how you raise your kids? Wouldn't it be nice to give your kids an advantage compared to all the things that they see and experience in this world and it's just magnifying and you're like, I'd love to give my kids a one-up. I'd love to give them an advantage. And you might look around and say, I'd love to have an advantage at work. Like, how do I work in a way to bring value to my culture? And you want to say it would be great to have an advantage. Well, the resurrection gives the disciples an advantage in the age of anxiety and depression in two areas. It'd be great to have an advantage, wouldn't it? It would be great, and we live like them in an age of anxiety, an age of depression. But the resurrection gives them, and by the way, gives you and me, an advantage in such an age. 
The first of the two ways is identity. Identity is found in community, and the resurrection solidifies it. Remember, these guys are hiding away, the disciples, the 11, they're hiding away because they're worried that since Jesus got crucified, and that's Jesus, what of them is going to happen to them? Are they going to get revenge, backlash, tortured? What's going to happen to them? They're hiding. But what happens? A resurrection happens, and it solidifies their identity in who Jesus Christ is, not just great teacher, but as Thomas, the one who doubted, said, he came back and he put his fingers in the nail scars of Jesus' hand and put his hand in the side where Jesus was stuck with the spear. And Thomas, who doubted, said, my king and my God. These people were forever changed. They were given identity that they're a part of God's forever family. The problem is, People in this day and age are shaky about who we're supposed to be. Everything is questioned about who we're supposed to be. And culture has complicated you and I being created in the image of God, what we call Imago Dei. And so even at the very basic issues, we're, we're confused. We don't know who we are and who we're supposed to be and where community is authentically found. And we're reaching for hope, but we're actually tormented by hope. Well, in Romans 8, 15 Paul says this, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father, which means daddy. Here's the difference. They go from being like, I'm not allowed to directly approach God without an animal sacrifice to all of a sudden being like, because of Jesus, satisfying God's wrath against sin, I can now approach daddy. My father, he's not to be feared. I'm not to be his slave anymore. I'm now part of his forever family. What I want to let you know is that all pronouns in those verses are plural. So here's how it would really read. It gets tough for us in English sometimes, but in Greek it would read like this. The spirit you receive does not make y'all slaves so that y'all live in fear again. Rather, the spirit y'all received brought about your adoption to sonship, right, or daughtership, and by him we corporately say daddy. We have identity. It is found that we are adopted. We are accepted by God, even with your problems and my problems. We don't need to fear again. In Christ, you'll naturally be a son or a daughter of the Most High God. And God wants us to get out of isolation and get back into community. Because community is the foundation of hope. You need significance in life to thrive. And everybody's reaching for significance, but they're tormented by hope. Well, one of the advantages the resurrection gives us, one of the advantages we can give to others, is that their identity can be in Jesus Christ. It's the foundation of significance. The second thing, the second advantage that you can have and you can give to others, if you're, particularly if you're raising others, is the word grit. Grit. We want gritty people. What does grit mean? Grit means this. Grit is the ability for sustained progress in the face of opposition because of hope. So saying, even though we have obstacles, even though we have suffering, even though life is relentless, that I'm going to have sustained progress. I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to persevere. Why? Because that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character produces hope. So I'm becoming more and more a gritty person, a person with grit. I'm having to become a person of resilience. Listen right now, teachers are scratching their heads because they're watching little children when they think that they're being asked to do something that's too difficult, just fall on the ground and not do it. 
Why is that happening? Why is that different than it was 10 years ago? Because we're being taught that hope is not to be trusted. And if you don't think you can do it, you're not about to hope that maybe you can with some help. And let me tell you, if you're a parent in this room or a grandparent or you have influence over other people right now, two of the things that you will want to do is say, how do I help people understand their identity in Christ and how do I help young people become gritty teenagers and gritty children and people who build up resilience? Let me tell you something. Our youth ministries and our children's ministries here at church, we are so focused to help people walk into identity with Jesus and to give them experiences where they build grit because we want resilient young people because we believe they are the church of right now and the church of the future. Well, how do you do it? How do we train people in that? Well, Romans 8, 18, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He's saying, we will suffer right now, but we're gonna persevere. We're gonna endure. And again, in that chapter, verse 24, he says, for in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope for, at all for who hopes for what they already have. But if we hope for what we yet do not have, we wait for it patiently. And there's, it gives us a little insight into how to develop grit. And one of the great ways that even our culture and educational specialists will tell us that you can train grit into your life or in the lives of those you influence, number one is through delay gratification. Oh, we're the instant culture, aren't we? but delay gratification. Number two, reading is one of the best ways to develop delay gratification, to develop grit. And third, saving up. Training your kids financially to have to wait, to save, to purchase, to own, to be able to have that. Those are great ways to train grit. It's interesting that this youngest generation, iGen, is the first generation that loves seeking out people of wisdom to the extent that iGen still goes over and visits their friends' parents even though their friends went off to college. Why is that? Why are they still going over to their friend's house just to talk to the parents even though the friend has gone to college? Because they seek out people of wisdom. They want to know more. They're tormented by hope. They're desperate for knowledge and connection and relationship. They want identity and they want to be developed and to be people of grit. Well, how do you do that for you and I? Well, replace screen time with group sports. Individual sports are great. Group sports may be even better because of that reason. Second, get in a church circle group. We don't want to be a church with circles. We want to be a church of circles. And this next series that we're going into will go for a number of weeks. It's an all-church series, and we want every single person in the series that starts next weekend to be in a circle group. And we'll have some guys on the men's retreat uh, next weekend, and you're going to have opportunity there to get in some groups, and that may be one where you find a home. But it's going to be a great thing. We need to do that. Listen, you can stay entombed. Entombed. In anxiety and depression and the message of our culture without hope. Or you can come out of the tomb and be accepted by God because of Jesus and the work that he did on the cross. And some of you are like, I don't know if I can do that because I don't know if I can believe something I don't know everything about. Say, oh, really? Do you know everything about gravity? Some of you know firsthand about gravity, but do you know everything about, do you know everything about a black hole? Do you believe in black holes? Do you know everything about the chair that you gave faith to and you sat down here today? I mean, is that a Christian manufacturer? Do you know if that was a good manufactured chair? Yet you sat in it today and you thought it would hold you. And thankfully, so far, they have. 
We don't have to know everything to believe in something. Don't believe that lie. And what we do is we just come and we go, the ladies, they suddenly run into Jesus, suddenly Jesus. Did they know everything? Well, wait, how'd you do that? Like, I don't understand. No. They believed, even though they didn't know everything. And I just want you to know that the beginning point is you and I giving faith. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, and I'm just asking you to do that, to think about your own life, not distracting people around you, but simply thinking about your own life. And for a moment, I want you to ask yourself, have I ever given faith, given belief to what Jesus did on the cross, that what he did on the cross was done for my sin, and that if I give faith to what he did on the cross, my sins can be forgiven, I can be washed as white as snow, I could have new life and be adopted into God's forever family, I could have hope that's trustworthy. And if that's you right now and you're just sensing something on the inside being like, I need to give that faith to Jesus, then right where you're seated, just quietly on the inside, God hears you, you just pray something like this, just say this, Jesus, today I give you me. I believe you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried, that you rose to new life because you are God. And I ask you to wash me as white as snow Would you make me a new creation on the inside? Because today, Jesus, I give you me. And right now, with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, if you prayed that prayer, will you raise your hand? Anywhere around the room that today was that day, right over here on this side, awesome. Right here in the front, greatest decision you could ever make. Just hold your hand up. We'll see you anywhere around the room. You might be up in the loft. You might be in our overflow in the studio, but we just want you to know that we see you, the decision that you're making. We praise God for what's happening in and through us. God, right now, for my brothers and sisters, many of us in this room, that at one time we would raise our hand saying, yes, I have made that decision. That God, even right now, we put our hope in you and the resurrection. God, we reject the lie that you cannot help our situation. God, we know that you do. We praise you. We serve you as a risen Lord, as your sons and your daughters. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. Hey, will you give it up for what God is doing in and through and among us? Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.